0: well take your uh, handout as we consider uh, part 2 today of a message i've entitled his cross his cross became a pulpit aw pink tells us in his writings that the cross is the most extraordinary event in all of human history you may think of some extraordinary events and there have been certainly uh, many events of renown but no event, no event, all pale when compared to the event of the cross of Jesus Christ. And I said uh, Wednesday night, I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of three crosses. You know, sometimes you'll see that, right? Three crosses, we know what that means uh, on Calvary, but I'm not a fan of that. There's only one cross. The other two died, they're just punishment. And there's only one cross, and it is the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, his cross became a pulpit. Michelangelo was an absolute genius. Some of you have studied him more than others. Some of you are more artistic, certainly more than I am. I I am not an artist uh, in the least uh, uh, that the word could be expressed. He was an excellent sculptor, designer, painter, and architect. Faith and I have had the occasion on more than one time to stand there at that Sistine Chapel and the look at Michelangelo's great painting on the, on the ceiling in the wall. We saw it before it was cleaned, and it was all smoke-covered after centuries of time. And the Mitsubishi Corporation paid a million dollars to the Vatican uh, for, uh, to, to clean it up with the rights to, for a, uh, 100 years that they would own all the photographs that would be taken of the Sistine Chapel. We saw it before, and that was something you can't imagine after they cleaned it and restored it, how absolutely beautiful uh, it is. Michelangelo, they say, laid on his back and painted that for years. I don't know if that's really true. Some doubt that. But he is greatly, greatly known. His statues of Moses and David, uh, are, to name just a few, are universally loved and studied by men and women of the arts. What many people do not know that is in Florence, Italy, there's an, a, a large hall that is filled with many, many unfinished sculptures, sculptural works by Michelangelo. And the truth of it is, is uh, either discarded it or the sands of time for him ran out and he never finished Well, as great as this artist was, he left much much unfinished. But in contrast, Jesus Christ, who only lived to be about 33 years of age, he left no unfinished work. That's amazing. You and I, when we come to the end of our days, we'll lay down the tools of our trade. You'll lay them down. If it's a workbench, you'll lay the wrench and the hammer down, and you'll never pick it up again, Ever. If you're a mechanic, it'll be that. If you're a teacher, it'll be that. If you're in medicine, if you're in nursing, uh, if, uh, no matter what it is, if you're in business or marketing, uh, business, you'll lay it down and uh, you'll never pick it up again. And maybe you'll be like uh, the dying Cecil Rhodes who said, so much to do, so little time. But not with the Lord. You see, the Lord finished everything that the Father had given him to do. He finished it all. That's amazing when you think about it. Amazing. In contrast to Michelangelo or Cecil Robes. Wow. Well, today's Palm Sunday. And this day long ago began Jesus' passion. Now, that's not the romance of a husband and a wife, though I have that passion for my dear sweetheart. That's not what it means. It's a Greek word, the word that comes to us in English, passion, and really it means suffering. So it's quite the opposite of romance. So you play with that however you want to do that. But really, it's the word in the Greek, passion, we know it in English, but suffering. It's the week of his suffering. And I suggested to you the other week that when you read the Gospels and you see the Lord Jesus, he's the main character. And even as he moves, I must needs go to Jerusalem. He's the prime mover. He's the activator of all that's going on. He is not the victim. He is not like, oh, no, what's happening? I didn't see this coming. No, he's moving right according to God's timetable to do his purpose completely, 100%. Even at his arrest, it's amazing. Judas approaches, kisses him, Hmm, how about that? And they ask, are you Jesus? He says what? I am. Amy in the Greek. And they blow over backwards. Now instantly, would you not have thought, I think I'm on the wrong team. I'm trading to the Buffalo Bills. I'm getting on a winner. No, you would have thought that, right? You pick yourself off the ground, and then you go and arrest him? You're like, whoa, he's in control of all of this. Even as he stands before Pilate, silent, then he speaks. Are you the Christ? Are you the king of the Jews? I am. Amazing. Amazing. Palm Sunday. Well, last week, as we began this study of his cross became a pulpit, uh, we saw the first three sayings of the Lord Jesus while he hung on the cross. Let me remind you, some of you weren't here, you take the four Gospels, and you look at that six-hour period of time that Jesus hung on Calvary's cross, and it was only six hours, 9 a.m. to 3, and you take that, and you study how many times the Lord spoke while on the cross. I've taken some, some pulpit liberty and called it a sermon, and therefore his pulpit uh, a cross, and... And there are seven, isn't it interesting, that there are only seven times that he speaks during that six-hour period of time. Uh, The first uh, we saw was a word of forgiveness. They nailed them to the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We suggest to you God answered that prayer, and many were saved on the first day of the church on the day of Pentecost, not many days from that point. Father, forgive them. Even a holy man would pray as he faced death, Father, forgive me for anything that I have not confessed and forsaken, but not the sinless one. Father, forgive them. And then second, we saw it was a word of salvation where the penitent thief who had been railing accusations against Jesus while hanging on the cross, seeing all these things. God opened his heart, and his elective grace saved him while on the cross. He couldn't offer a life of service, couldn't even be baptized, couldn't any of these things. Oh, remember me, he said to Jesus while hanging on the cross looking at it. Remember me. And Jesus did much more than that, didn't he? He said what? Well, today, second word from the cross, today, you will be with me in paradise. Not in, not in purgatory not in the grave, but in heaven, you will be with me. The Lord exceeded His expectation, as the Lord often does when we pray. We pray oftentimes on one one plane, asking for something. God says, "Whoa, that's pretty small. I got something whole much, whole lot bigger in mind." Today, you shall be with me in paradise. And then, third, we saw last week it was a word of tender care. Probably around noon, after hanging on the cross three hours, he looks and he sees Mary, his blessed mother, there with her sister, there with John, the apostle, the one he loved. And he gives his mother to John, and John to his mother was a word of tender care. And we saw, even in this hour of his greatest work and of his greatest suffering, he took care of his parents. He took care, in this case, of his mother. And uh, church history tells us that that John took Mary home to his home in Jerusalem and didn't leave the city uh, for 12 years until Mary died. He took care of her needs. Well, those are the first three words. We saw that last time. And we'll finish uh, this morning with the next four as we see seven words from his cross, his last pulpit, that should pierce our hearts, moving us to worship him. I suggested it. it's like the burning bush where the Lord spoke to Moses out of the burning bush, the bush in the wilderness that was not consumed, take off your shoes, your sandals, Moses, for the ground that you stand upon is holy ground. Take off your shoes. Why why would he say that? Well, because we are of the dust of the ground, and we are mere mortal, and we are to be connected to it. We are to humble ourselves. For we're in the presence of God. When we stand here and view the these words of Jesus from the cross, I feel the same way. Yeah, we ought to humbly, with holy hush, approach uh, and listen to the words of our Savior. Well, the first uh, word today, it's the fourth from the cross, and it's now probably, let me give you the time frame, 9 o'clock, he's nailed to the cross uh, at noon, uh, he gives uh, his mother to John. It goes then into three hours of darkness. Persian says at noonday it was midnight. God cast his father cast uh, darkness over the land. It uh, it was uh, symbolic of of, uh, of all that was taking place there physically that his son was being made sin. And he was turning his face away from his son. And Jesus, if we have it right, would not say anything during this intense spiritual anguish for three hours. From noon to three, not a word. And right at three, just before he dies, he's going to utter the words that we're looking at even this morning. And the first one, Roman numeral one, is a word of abandonment. He says in our text in Matthew twenty-seven forty-six about the ninth hour, that's the Roman clock, it's different than ours, the ninth hour, the day beginning at 6 a.m. in Rome, the ninth hour would be 3 p.m., about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Incredible words. Luther said of this, God forsaken by God, who can understand that? And he's exactly right <clears throat> <clears throat> when we think of it. David wrote in Psalm thirty-seven twenty-five: I was young, but now I'm old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken except for Jesus. He was utterly forsaken by his father. This paints for us the terrible picture of our sin and its wages. I'm saying to you, don't ever discount sin. You know, as we live in the murky mire of a depraved, degenerate world in a decadent day. Oh, my sin isn't as bad as, you know, and we grade on this failing scale. We all get Fs but we look at each other and somehow we feel a little better or that we don't. We discount sin. When we look at Calvary, and we're going to wonder, if you wonder, what does God think of sin? Is it just sort of like, ah, it's a boo-boo, it's a mistake, it's not really so bad? Look at Calvary and see God's estimation of sin for its utter rebelliousness against Him. The terribleness of our sin and its wage. And the Lord here, in saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is actually quoting the the Psalm of the Cross at Psalm 22, verse 1. Well, it's now around 3 p.m., as I said, darkness has fallen on the land at noon, and now Jesus breaks his three hours of silence with his cry, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God. Jesus' work as sin-bearer <clears throat> has caused his father to abandon him. Abandoned. Could there be a, a more terrible word than that? <clears throat> Sometimes you'll read in the paper of a mother abandoning her, her, her child or her baby. I remember reading that a few years ago. A woman did it to a degree that I don't know that I ever saw. There in a high-rise building in New York City, she abandoned her baby by dropping her baby down many floors, down an opening in her apartment, down into the waste can in the basement. You can read that and not almost weep. You, You may not be alive. You go, abandoned. Abandoned. And yet, to the nth degree, Jesus was abandoned by his father, according to the scriptures. He turned his face away from his son. As his son, who was sinless, who had pleased him always, according to the plan of God, was now being made legal or judicial sin for us. The Lamb of God. By his stripes we are healed. But he is the one who will pay the price. Abandoned. Never before, yet from eternity past, had he ever been separated from his father. Uh, It it just blows the mind to think about it. And he experiences for the first time spiritual death. You know how many times have we said the essence of death is separation. Someday you will die. If the Lord doesn't come back and uh, we'll go to your funeral and your body will be there, But you won't be there. Your death, your body, and your soul, or your spirit, your immaterial, your person, who you really are. You're not your body. Your body's like a car that's been getting banged up as you've been driving it around. And the ball bearings and the shocks are kind of wearing out on some of you. You're burning oil. I got news for you. (laughs) It's going to look better than ever someday, but uh, you're going to leave it. You're leaving it. Okay? And uh, death is separation, physical separation. It began in Adam. God did not create it originally that way. Adam and Eve were made to live forever. Sin entered. In the day you eat of it, you will die indeed. Adam began at that point of rebellion to die physically, and he would die 900 and some years later. He died spiritually, he was separated from God. He had enjoyed sweet and holy communion with the Lord. Spiritual death, separation, physical death. He would die. And, he, and, and the final death is, uh, is the death of the uh, unredeemed. Those of, that know not Christ the Lord as Savior and die that way. There's no second chance. Separated from ever in a place called hell in the lake of fire. Forever and ever abandoned by holy God. Separation is the essence. And Jesus was enduring spiritual separation or death and would eventually die. Isn't it amazing? We die first, right? We die first, then the judgment. That's what Hebrews says is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment, if you know Christ, it's the judgment seat of Christ for our works or lack of them for him. If you don't know Christ, it's the great white throne judgment. All that appear there will be cast into the lake of fire because you refuse the Savior, man's only hope. But we die first, then the judgment. Jesus was judged first, and then he died. Just the reverse, but for us and on our behalf. He was abandoned, one man wrote, number two, that we might never be as his father turned his face from him. Wow, to be God-forsaken. You know, we use that term sometimes, don't we? We, we see some horrible situation, we say, it is a God-forsaken place. Yeah, you know, sometimes people talk about with Haiti, how terrible that uh, disaster was and continued to be for some time. And have you seen the wreckage and the ruin down there and the heartbreak? And now they say the rainy seasons are coming. And those dear folks, if you've been in the tropics, the rainy season is brutal. You go like, what a God-forsaken place it is. Well, it isn't God-forsaken. God is doing some, some wonderful works there in the church and through loving the response, I hope perhaps that you were moved in your heart to help and, and may continue to do that. But it isn't God-forsaken. God abandoned. But on Calvary's cross, there was one who was utterly forsaken and abandoned by God his Father. Well be. As our sin bearer, his question of why was not one of distrust, but one of distress. I might say to you, this is the first time in all his life that Jesus ever uttered the word, ever crossed his lips. Why? Why? That's a great question when you're in school and you're curious and you want to know why things are the way they are, why things work the way they are can be a question of rebellion. It can be a question of distress. His was not one of rebellion. His was not one of needing information. His was one of utter and complete distress. Why? Somebody said you can drive uh, anybody crazy by saying why, like, what, four or five times. Mommy, why do we eat lunch? And she tells you, and then you say, why? Well, because it's good for you. Why? And and you keep pressing like that and watch mommy go crazy on you. Why? 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 First time ever, do a study of the gospel. First time and only time Jesus ever expressed the word why. As he hung on that cross in the anguish, it was not distrust for he fully trusted his father. It was an expression of anguish. And on the cross, he endured an eternity of wrath for our sin. He could do this being the God-man. He was God. He was man, forever joined, completely God, completely man. And he took our place as substitute. He was your substitute. Maybe you played on on a baseball or softball team, and they needed a substitute hitter. You know, you're, you're strategizing, right? And they... And the coach says, you're in, and you got a good bat, and hopefully get a hit and drive a run, and you're the substitute in a far greater way. That's really the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, despised by liberal theologians not preached on in many churches today. It is the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the Bible. That's what Jesus was. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. And the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was your substitute. He is a personal Savior, just not a groupy thing. You must come to receive him as your Lord and as your Savior, one by one, just as you were born. In a simple prayer of repentance, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I repent, I turn from that. Thank you for dying for me. I receive you as my Lord and as my Savior. And if you have prayed that or would pray that even today, Christ will become your substitute in your standing before Holy God with his inflexible justice and yet with his enormous love and providing a Savior for you. Wow, the agony of his soul, I should tell you, was far worse than his physical sufferings, as great as they were. For in doing this, in doing this, he was truly alone, forsaken by all. Alone. Do you like being alone? A lot of people hate being alone. My mother had seven children, and it fills her life with a lot of activity, even though most of us have scattered and moved far away. There are still some at home. And her life is very, very busy for a lot of years. And then when my father suddenly died, and now the years have gone on, and my sister was telling me the other day, my mom's still living in Buffalo, in her home all by herself. The dog, she even outlived her dog and Jan was telling me that uh, mom is really struggling, feeling very alone. As much as the kids up there try and, and do what they can, I called yesterday, and, and she was out. She goes to church Saturday evening. She, I must have missed her. But she's, she's feeling alone. Alone. We don't like that feeling. We have to be alone at points, Right? I have to kind of hide and study and meet with God and all that, but after that, boy, I want to circulate. I want to talk. I want to be with people to go day after day and and week after week with being by yourself, all alone. People, God made us social creatures, and uh, we need to connect. And, and don't you love good friends and family? and One of the reasons for church and church family. Isn't that great? Isn't that neat? Not, it's, not, it's not fun to be alone. It's not great to be in solitary uh, regiment. Uh, yet he was all alone. He was forsaken by all, even his Father. Well, wow. The cross reveals, I said earlier, God's inflexible justice and yet his incredible love. Some will say, well, why couldn't Jesus just, why couldn't the Father just wink at sin and let it go? Great on an average. Curve it. Curve the grades. His justice. He's righteous. He's holy. He just doesn't bend it. Okay, let them all in. No. But his love found a way, we sing. His deep, deep, the depth of his love for us and the love and the justice or the love and the holiness of God intersected and met at Calvary's cross right there for time and eternity. And I put it this way, how much does God hate sin? I tell you, the answer to that is, look at Calvary. Look what he poured out on his son. That's how much God hates sin in your life and mine. And yet you say, well, how much does God love us? And the answer is the same. Look at Calvary, the spread out arms of the Lord Jesus Christ, his suffering spiritually separated from the Father, the agony and the anguish of the cross. And I say to you, that's how much God loves you and loves me. It is the greatest love story. It's not some sort of romantic book called Love Story where she dies and they make a great movie out of it. It's the great love story. God so loved that he gave. We love him because he first loved us. And that's the message of Calvary, God's inflexible justice, and yet his almost incredible love for men and women and boys and girls. They intersect at Calvary. Jesus' cry, warns us of the final condition of every lost man or woman, and that is abandoned forever. How horrible is that? Friends, people have told me in sharing the gospel, well, when I go to hell, I'll be with my buddies and we'll have a great beer blast. And it'll be just party on forever and ever. I got news for you. The Bible never teaches that. Never. It's a place of eternal torment and fire where the worm does not die and the thirst is never quenched. Darkness and shrieking horror in terror, separated, abandoned, darkness forever. And Jesus' cross gives us just a little inkling of that. If the Father so abandoned the Son as he took on his great work of being sin-bearer for you and for me, abandoned, how great and horrible will it be for those who know not Christ the Lord as Savior. You know, uh, if you're saved, you need never fear God. Never. Perfect love casts out fear. But if you're here and you have never trusted Jesus Christ, never received him as your Lord and Savior, you know what the Bible says? It is a fearful thing. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. That was the basis of Jonathan Edwards' great sermon, that he preached hundreds of years ago in New England, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Angry. He will mete out justice. And if you will not receive the work that is completely finished, the one that his son did and did alone, you don't add anything to it, then you will suffer forever. Oh, I urge you, flee the wrath that is to come and receive Christ the Lord as your Savior receive him, and you will be saved forever. For what God does, he does forever. He saves and he keeps. If you're saved, you are saved forever. It is the finished work. So many people think, well, it's Jesus and me. What do you mean by that? Well, Jesus died, but I'm trying to be good. Really? You're trying to be good? Well, you mean, uh, why, why, why would you say it? Well, I'm hoping when I get to St. Peter's door, whatever that is, that's not biblical, and I knock on it, and he says, why should I let you in? Well, Jesus died, and I kept the Ten Commandments. I said, really? I got news for you. You're in deep trouble. You won't get in, and there's no Peter's door, and instantly, you'll be You'll perish. You'll perish. How about, uh, write this verse down, John 3.36. Jesus said, He that believes not the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Flee the wrath that is to come. Wow, flee, run from it. He is our loving substitute. There's a story told of uh, the tribes... uh, uh, that once roamed in the Russian, what we know as Russia didal, was much like the Indian tribes that were in the uh, North America. And the tribes controlled the best hunting grounds, and the choicest natural resources uh, were often, uh, they were often these tribes led by the strongest and the wisest leaders. And the story of one particular tribe was, whose success was due largely to the fairness and wisdom of the laws that were established and enforced by its great leader. One day, it was reported that somebody was stealing. and The leader of the tribe issued a proclamation that the thief, when captured, would receive 10 lashes from the tribal whipmaster. Despite the warning, the thievery continued, even as the leader upped the uh, level of punishment. And eventually, he stopped raising that level once it reached a threat of 40 lashes, knowing that only he could survive such a severe lashing. One day, the thief was finally caught the horror of everyone was revealed. The thief turned out to be the leader's own mother. The people speculated what the leader would do. One of his laws required children to love and honor their parents. Yet another demanded the public whipping of the thieves. Great arguments arose as the day of judgment approached. Would he satisfy his love and save his mother? Or would he satisfy his law and watch his mother die under the whip? Finally the day came, the tribe gathered around the great compound and in the center of it stood a great large whipping post. The leader soon entered and sat down on his throne. The two towering warriors led his frail mother into the compound and tied her to the post. Finally the tribal whip master, a powerful man with bulging muscles, entered carrying a long leather whip as he approached the little woman. The warriors ripped off her garment, exposing her frail back. The whipmaster took a stance. His great arms cracked the whip into the air as he prepared to bring the first lash upon her. Just then, the leader held up his hand to halt the punishment. A sigh of relief went up from the tribe. His love would be satisfied. But what about his law? The leader rose from his throne and walked towards his mother, and as he walked, he removed his own shirt, tossing it aside. He then wrapped his great arms around his mother, exposing his huge muscular back to the whipmaster, breaking the heavy silence he commanded, proceed with the punishment. Well, that wonderful story, in a way, illustrates what Jesus did for us. You understand that? He took your punishment in mine. It was the love of God. It was the justice and the holiness of God that was satisfied in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, a word of abandonment. It was the climax of his suffering. Wow. What a love story. But there is a second, uh, Roman numeral 2 today. It's actually word number 5 from the cross. It's a word of physical agony. In John 19, verse 28, and we see that the text says, I thirst. In the Greek, it's simply one word. It was a word of agony. You know, he suffered horribly in body on the cross. Some of you have saw the passion of Christ. And uh, many uh, watching that uh, reenactment Uh, were moved to tears. And uh, even as the film came to an end, people sat there wiping their cheeks, just entering into the thought of all that Christ uh, received, a brutalizing, punishing, physical death for you and for me. Sometimes we give too little thought to that. But up to this time, and now it's around 3 o'clock on that day, he's just about ready to die and and to give his spirit up, uh, we've not heard a single word of physical suffering, even when they drove the nails in. This word, this word of physical agony, offers sweet communion, our sweet comfort, for we suffer physically. Well, it comforts us knowing that Jesus knows what it is to suffer in body. I'm not big on pain, and some of you aren't. And as a whole, they say women are better at pain. I don't know if that's true or not. Ladies, you think? Yeah, men are sort of big babies, are they? Uh, I'm I'm unashamedly admitting that's true for me. uh, I'm not big on pain, and give me the pill or the morphine or something. You know, uh, knock me out. I'm not big on that. But, you know, when we are in pain and physically agonizing... Uh, there is a sense of great uh, comfort in our heart and consolation to know that Jesus suffered in body. The old uh, writers put it this way, that God did not isolate himself from physical suffering in the person of Christ, and that now we have a high priest who can be touched with the feelings of our weakness and our suffering and our hurts and our pains because he suffered, and he knows what it's like to suffer. And that's an encouragement. Uh, remember, Jesus, though God in flesh, was a real man. He was. The Gospels tell us he hungered. He hungered there in his fasting. Remember that? And it's during the temptation, 40 days and 40 nights. He grew tired and he slept. He slept in the, uh, in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. He, he grew weary like we grow weary. He, he was a man. He wept at Lazarus' grave going into Jerusalem. He wept. He had real tears. Sometimes when we think of the God-man, we think, well, okay, he was God, so he wasn't really man or Superman or something like that. No, he, 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 his divinity was veiled. That was part of his humiliation in the, in the kenosis and his becoming man. But he was all man, and genuine man, and ideal man, and, and without sin. And he suffered. Uh, you get a hangnail, he hurt. You whack yourself in the thumb with a hammer, it hurt. Okay, so get the right, get the right idea here. It wasn't like, well, that didn't hurt, or he runs faster than a speeding bullet, or, or, or is that a locomotive, or whatever it is. It isn't that. He was a real man. A real man, and for six hours not a word is recorded that he uttered of any physical suffering till right now as he's just at the point of death. He had been, number two, had been whipped and beaten. He had been nailed to the cross. You know, the whipping was with, uh, with leather straps and embedded in the leather straps were pieces of pottery and rock in flint, so that when the whipmaster struck the back, it ripped the flesh right off. It was, he was beaten in body. A, a lesser man, a lesser man could not have endured. It would have died before the cross. And yet not a word of, uh, 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 from him insofar as physical agony and pain. He gave no evidence of it. And yet the pain was beyond words. The maker of heaven and earth, imagine this, with parched lips. He who made the seas and all that's within them needed a drink of water. The God of glory needed a drink of water. It's amazing because he's he's nailed to the throne, he's nailed to the cross, his last pulpit as I suggested to you, and yet his mind is thinking through all of Scripture and And do you know that there was one last scripture that he needed to fulfill one last, and it would complete all the prophetic utterances of the lord Jesus Christ and I have it on your sheet I think you do yeah psalm sixty nine twenty one and he 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 as his mind thinks about this passage, and they put gall that was kind of a uh, uh a, a, an ingredient that would numb the pain they put all in my food and gave me vinegar. Vinegar was the cheap wine of the Roman soldiers of that day. Uh, uh, Somebody would never drink vinegar thinking it was wine, but that's what the Roman soldiers uh, chucked down, Uh, and they put it on a sponge. They gave me vinegar for my thirst, and that was the last remaining, and we know that from other verses in the New Testament, pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he exclaims in one word in the Greek, I thirst, I thirst. Earlier he refused it because it had the gall on it which would numb his, uh, his body. He would, he would drink the cup fully and be fully aware of all that was, was doing. But now at this point he would drink it. Uh, he had began his ministry in hunger in the wilderness and now he ends it in thirst. Wow, Suffering. Dying men often say that the agony of thirst exceeds all other pains. And I say that from many accounts from the battlefield where soldiers have been been shot and bludgeoned and uh, waiting for morphine or whatever, and at certain points all of that numbs over and they get such an incredible craving for thirst. And uh, it overwhelms any and all other suffering and pain. And here the Lord, I thirst, is an expression of the totality of his physical agony on the cross for you and for me. Suffering. He suffered. He suffered for you and for me. Suffering. Well, I've seen suffering, haven't you? You go to the hospital. We were at the hospital, Faithy and I, this week, and you see all sorts of things. Some of you, bless your heart, you work in the hospital and help. And I've had occasion, uh, we've been to Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh. That's a blessed place, really a special place. And some of those wards that deal with children that are, are, are terminally ill, and, and, and they, they do not think that they will make it. And uh, they suffer. and I've, I've ministered to some of the children that suffer, some of the children with leukemia, and uh, they've made great advances in that, but they still, still it's a problem at points, and children suffering physically, and I've prayed with them, and you love them. Well, Jesus wasn't a child, but he suffered. He's, I thirst. I thirst. He suffered physically. I don't know what it is that you may suffer from physically. We all, in time, if you don't now, you will later. The Lord tarries. You will have aches and pains and difficulties. And uh, Know that there is a Savior in heaven who suffered far more than you and far more than me physically. And We have a high priest who understands. Isn't it great to be understood? When you have a great problem where you're going through something hard, you... Don't you love it where you have a dear friend or someone who's going through similar thing, and they say, "You know, I understand that. I understand that." They wrap their arms around you and hug you. We need that, don't we? He suffered. He suffered. He suffered for us. But his suffering, and I'll say in a moment, is just about over. Just about over. And he'll never suffer again, ever. Some people still have Jesus on the cross. I got the news for you. He's not on the cross. Get him off the cross. If you have any of that in your house, get those. He's done with that. He's the mighty conquering king. He is almighty God. He's the victor. He's the hero. And here is that the last moments of his suffering, and his suffering would never be again. Sort of sounds like us, right? You know? When we are, if the Lord doesn't come back and we suffer and we wait and, and there's coming a day when we will never suffer again. No more toothaches, no more bellyaches, no more headaches, no more sinus, no more allergies, no more heart palpitations. no more joint aches and all the rest. No more because he suffered once for us. Wow, I thirst. Wow. Well, there's a third. We're right now almost to the end. The third uh, word from the cross that we're looking at today. In total, it's the sixth. It's right at the three o'clock hour. And in a loud voice, John 19 30, we discover he expresses this word of victory. It's a wonderful verse. And later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, here it is, it is finished. It is finished. It's a word of victory. Tetelestai. That's, I put it, transliterated right from the Greek there on your page. It's a great word. Tetelestai. It is finished. The victim became the victor. And his work was now finished. And in this one word, it almost wraps up the entirety of the gospel. It's a finished work. Now, this word is, the, is not the word of defeat. Some would present it that way. Jesus was run over by his own revolution. That's not it at all. Get the right idea on this. It's the word of the conquering general who at the high point sees the battle and the enemy is routed and victory is secure. And he yells, Tetelestai, it is finished, victory. It's used in another venue where the artist has just finished a masterpiece. And he's put the last bit on there and he looks back and he says, Tetelestai, completed, finished, Victory. And the Lord says it, and it's, it's said in another verse, a parallel. He said, with a great voice, so all would know that it was finished. A, Jesus secured an accomplished atonement. It's a finished work. It's a price that's paid in full. It's his great work. His was a word of jubilee. It was not a word of defeat. The battle was won. He had completed the Father's will for him. He had no regrets. Isn't that great? Isn't that great to know that once you know Christ and you, you strive to please Him and walk with Him and to do His will, that the regret list is a whole lot less. Now, let's be honest. We all have some regrets. We all made some boneheaded decisions, some sinful, some just stupid, right? <laughs> and we we're like, oh, man, if I could do that over again. But if you love the Lord and you serve him and daily, you get up and you want to walk with him, Lord, I want to do your will today, your list of regrets is going to be a whole lot less than otherwise. Jesus had no regrets. He had finished the work in its entirety. Wow, the battle was won. His suffering was finally over. And as I said earlier, he would never, ever suffer again. Ever. Never. Boy, don't they say never use the word never, or never say ever, or never say always. But when you're talking of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, it's never suffer again. Wow. Wow. That sounds too good for words. I can't wait. Well, during all his days, think about it, his cross had always been before him. When he came, and then he was 12, and don't you know, I must be about my father's business. The cross was always there in front of him as he lived his years and became in the fuller realization of God the Father's will for him. And as he moved about, that three-year itinerant ministry, and then he moved toward Jerusalem to the cross, I must need suffer and die on the cross and be raised on the third day. It always was before him. It always was. And now at this moment, it was almost all done. It is finished. And it would be all behind him. Isn't it great when you have things like that behind you? I remember about a year ago, I went to the doctor, and I and, uh, said, Doc, having a little problem walking here. What is it, you know, muscular? What is it, you know, this and that? took an x-ray, and he said, oh, my word. He said, I- I'm surprised you can even walk. I said, what, how's that? He said, look at your hip socket. It's supposed to have a radius. I-, I don't know what you got growing there, but it's not normal. Osteoarthritis, he said. We all get it when we get older. Great day, great day. You got it now. And so we got to schedule a, a, a total hip replacement. You're going to be worth more. You're going to have titanium in you. Oh, great. First word's out of my mouth, oh, great. That's all I need to hear. That was like April, all right? And So he, he said, when can we schedule you? And uh, he looked at his calendar, and then I was trying to think of what we had, and he said, uh, June 30th. And that was like April. And I go like, oh, man. I've got to live a couple months thinking about it, right? You know, don't you wish I'd just take you in and just do what you need to do and then send you out the other end, right? No, I had 60 days or more to think about it. Great day, going to cut my leg open, throw it over my head, <laughs> hack the head of my bone off, ram a piece of steel in there. Oh, that's fun. I can't wait for that. Oh, I wonder if I'll survive, you know? It's just like hanging there, you know? Like, yeah, summer's coming, yeah, so what, you know? Yeah, it's just kind of hanging there. I imagine that's one thing the other to happen. I'm thankful for it. Her faith would be wheeling me around. <laughs> she doesn't want to do that. But uh, how about to have the cross always there? You always know it's there. It's coming. This, And now it's finally happened, and now it's finally just about over, to That's what's going on. Wow, it's a word of victory. We're on the victor's side. Wow, it had been before him. He was the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He had known loneliness, rejection, sneering, scoffing, and physical and mental anguish. And now it was over, just about over. It's finished it's a finished work. You know, a told about a leading manufacturer. They had developed a new cake recipe, and uh, they had developed it. They did all the testing on it and all the focus groups or whatever they do with that, and uh, people, uh, people loved it. And it was all there in the package, and all you had to do was add water. And when it finally hit the shelves a number of years ago, uh, it didn't sell. It, it, it didn't sell, and they were, like, really perplexed because it was moist and it was good. I'll keep going that way because you all look kind of hungry and we're going to eat here. <laughs> and it was so great. It was so great. Nobody bought, hardly anybody bought it. So they did another focus group study on the thing, and they found out that people didn't believe it. They didn't believe you just add water to a cake mix, and it was as good as what mom or grandma made, right? So it dawned on them, okay, well, what we ought to do is just invite people to add an egg, so they, they didn't need to, but they just said add egg and water, and the stuff flew off the uh, shelves because people love the idea that it can't be a finished thing, right? Add water, oh, it can't be. God, I got to do something, right? When Jesus finished, it was a finished work, and no eggs need to be added. He did it all, and to all we hold. And that's why the great song of Billy Graham, Just as I am without one plea. We come just as we are. We don't add anything to it. It's tetalestai. It's finished. We're victorious because of him. And finally, the last word, the seventh word from his pulpit on the cross in Luke's Gospel 2346, it's a word of committal. Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Now he calls God his Father. I didn't emphasize that he had called him God earlier because he was legal sin at that point and stood before his Father God as sin and hence called him God. But now his work is finished. It's finished. And now he commends his spirit, that's his person, that's who he is, and he does so in Luke 23, 46 with a mega voice, with a loud voice, letting all people know. Well, this is a word that caused you and I to never fear death, never fear it, for it brings us immediately into the presence of of the Lord Jesus. Absent from the body, present with the Lord, And what a great thing that is. There have been many great saints through the years who have uttered these words and some of their final words as they lay on a deathbed. Lord Jesus, here I come. Lord Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen did that in Acts 7, 59. Similar words as he lay dying. And many saints have used these words. Father, into your hands I give my spirit. You need never fear death for it brings us instantly, totally, into the presence of the Lord Jesus. Note, Jesus' death was voluntary. It was voluntary. He died by an act of his own choice, John 10, 17 through 18. I lay my life down. Nobody took it. I lay it down, he tells in that Good Shepherd discourse. He laid it down. Remember in the garden where he was arrested, he blew them off their feet. But he laid his life down. It was a voluntary death. He died by an act of his own choice. Now he calls God Father. His work of sin offering was now complete. You should know that it normally takes one to two days for crucifixion to, to uh, expire the life of the person nailed to the cross. One or two days. And Jesus' time on the cross was a mere six hours and he died. You see, he dismissed his own spirit at his own appointed time. Nobody took it. Do you catch that? You and I won't do that. You and I will, well, if the Lord doesn't come, we'll wait, we'll wait and wonder when that appointed hour is and the appointed moment when God shall take us home, but not Jesus. At 3 o'clock, when all things were finished and victory was had, and, Father, into your hand, I commend my spirit. He died. He laid his own life down at his moment. Well, B, Jesus commits his spirit. That's his person to the Father. He commits. It's the word for deposit, not like a lot of the banks that have went under. Hopefully you didn't lose your nickels and dimes, right? My bank went under. Oh, those are bad words. Hopefully it was insured. We see that. It's a funny day we live in, right? To commit or to commend is the word to deposit. Jesus gave his person into the hands of his Father. Not in the darkness. Some teach that. When you die, it's all dark. No, not in the chaos. No, not in the nothingness. There's some false. Religions of the world that teach that. When you die, you go into nothingness. Oh, for joy, let's have a party. That sounds like fun. Not bright lights, though heaven is bright for sure. Not hell, let me just say. The Apostles' Creed, originally given, was right. It was added on to years later, should not have been, where the uh, addition is, and he descended into Hell. That was not originally part of the apostles' creed. He did not go into hell. That's crazy. Is paradise hell? You, you're smart enough. To say, wait, wait, you'll be with me in paradise. We're going to hell first. <laughs> I thought the train was up, not you know, one of these multi-stop things. No. No. It's a it's a confusion of a passage in, in, in Ephesians and in 1 Peter. And began at the right. He descended. From heaven first, it's the incarnation down to earth. And then he ascended. It's not on earth and he descended down into hell. So think about that right, rightly on that. We don't have time. I have a whole message on that. We'll do that sometime. But it wasn't hell, but into the Father's hand. Jesus ended his ministry just as he began it, and it's in prayer. Didn't he? he was there at his baptism, his public ministry, and he's praying. And heaven broke open, and the Spirit, and the voice of the Father, and you know it. And here he is praying. And Many dying saints have echoed these words. Well, the practice of a lifetime usually is not diminished in the hour of death. And he prayed, and he filled his life with prayer, and he's praying now. Well, you must say, his birth was unique, wasn't it? It was unique. How else would you expect the the Son of God, God verily, to be born? A unique birth. Can we say his life was unique? There was no life ever like the Lord Jesus. None, never, never. We can think of some of the greats and some of the scholastics and and academics and and so on, but no life like Jesus. And shall we say it even finally now? There was no one who ever died like he. Birth, life, and death. There was none like our blessed Lord Jesus, the (laughs) Lamb of God. The Blessed One. Wow. Well, what can we say? Lessons for our life and we'll be done. Number one. Number one. Hell is the ultimate place of abandonment. You don't want to be there. It's not my word. I'm just the delivery guy here. Some of you got the Sunday morning paper delivered. That's the delivery guy. Delivered the news. He didn't print it. I didn't print it. It's in the book. Hell is the ultimate place of abandonment today. Let me urge you to believe upon Jesus and be saved from the penalty of your sin. And more than that, if you are saved, pass that good news along. Will you do that? Don't let it die with you. Don't be like the Dead Sea. You just receive, but you never give out. It's no wonder it stinks, and it's no wonder nothing grows there. Be like the Sea of Galilee. It receives and gives out. Pass it along written, form by word, love people enough to tell them the truth. Number two, your heart should be filled with gratitude and love for the one who was forsaken that we might never be. More love to you, Lord. More love to you. May we pray that. May that be the reality of our life. Lord, may I be filled with other gratefulness as my days are passing quickly and my appointment. You know, we all have an appointment with death. All of us do. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Number three, never minimize your sin. Thinking, well, it's not much. Look at the cross and see God's value or his evaluation of what it is. It's selfish. It's rebellion. It's, it's of our carnal nature that you're, you're born with and so am I. But don't minimize it. Look at the cross. Number four, marvel and embrace God's deep, deep love for for you. Marvel at it and embrace it. It's the great love story. You need never fear the Lord God. If you're in Christ, mm, mm -mm. others may hurt us, all may fail, but Jesus never. It is his love, the love of God. In Paul's prayer in Ephesians, oh, that we might come to understand the, the height and the width and the depth of the love of God in Christ. That God should so love us that he did that for you and for me. Wow. And number five and last, I'll say it again never fear death. Never. Never. Be like my family's pastor there in the greater Buffalo, New York area at the chapel. Good Pastor Jim Andrews, good godly man, now in heaven. And uh, they discovered one day, young man, he was just into his 60s, and uh, pancreatic cancer. And you know, for for most, that's not a very good diagnosis. And They gave him a number of months to live, and the people were weeping when he told them about it. And he said, you know, I've taught you how to live all these years, how to come to Christ and how to live and serve Him. Now, it seems it's God's appointment for me to teach you how a Christian dies, and I will do that. And he did. And when they wheeled him out on the stage, on the stage, on the platform to say goodbye to his people in the final weeks of his life, he was just, he had shriveled so much up. He was grayish and ashen in color. And, he, and he, he bid farewell and God bless and prayed. And those people that were there will never forget it. For their pastor, their shepherd, their under-shepherd of the Lord taught them, you never, ever need to fear death, ever. You shut your eyes and breathe your last, absent from the body, you are home. And I always feel good to be home. I get tired of traveling. I'm still tired from the Middle East. And those weeks uh, we were, I don't know if I'm getting older or what, I still relish sleeping in my own bed at home. And that's what you are if you know Christ. You're at home with the Lord. You never need to fear home. Father, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit.